1967 saw Lewis Gilbert step into the Bond directing role for the first time, in an adventure that pitted 007 against a Spectre plot to bring about war between Russia and the United States of America by stealing space shuttles and hiding them in a secret volcano lair in Japan. Starring Sean Connery in what was supposed to be his final turn in the tux, this is You Only Live Twice. Podcasters, assemble! Good evening, 003. The following is for your ears only and is classified above top secret by Her Majesty's Secret Service. Our contact with the We Can Make This Work, probably, podcast network intercepted an encrypted audio message regarding podcasters assembled. For this season, the podcast network is looking to recruit field operatives from around the world to reminisce about the Bond movies and a countdown to the latest film in the franchise, No Time to Die. Your primary objective is to infiltrate podcasters assemble by recording and uploading your submissions at probablywork.com. Utilizing a two-way communications device with a built-in microphone, the latest from QBranch. For a full mission report, go to probablywork.com. We're all counting on you, 003. Eric Slater here from Epic Fails of History. Hi, I'm Gabriella, the host of You Won't Forget Me, the All About Joan Crawford podcast. Yo, this is Corey Torgerson, photographer, film nut, and podcast hopper. This is Troidal Power from the best animated shows ever so far. This is MC from the best animated shows ever so far. This is Justin Aki, graphic designer and one half of Significant Otter Co. I'm Megan Aki, the other half of Significant Otter Co. I'm here to talk about one of my absolute favorite Bond films. This week, we get to see Sean Connery's final Bond appearance in... You Only Live Twice. You Only Live Twice. You Only Live Twice. You Only Live Twice. The most ambitiously racist movie yet. You Only Live Twice is the fifth movie, but the twelfth book. So right away, this movie is bonkers. This movie is one that didn't stick out to me when I started trying to think about these, but as I rewatched it, more and more things um, became familiar to me. You know, this was originally supposed to be Connery's last movie, and it's actually pretty decent. I actually really enjoyed this movie. Connery's penultimate outing in the official Eon franchise is often maligned and dismissed for two main reasons. Firstly, because viewers and fans often say that he's phoning his performance in. And secondly, because Bond goes undercover as a Japanese fisherman in the latter half of the film. There's enough against this movie, but it's basically a single location story. Now, there's really only two locales in the whole movie. You got Japan and space. Bond doesn't go to space like he kind of almost does in that one scene, but it's basically set in Japan. Especially for the time, the whole space race and Russia versus America. Although we still feel that Bond is in enough danger for the stakes to be fairly high. He is trying to stop the Cold War from literally heating up inside of a volcano, after all. And it focuses on a plot of Spectre to get the US and Russia to go to war. Presumably by China's backing? I can only imagine it was super relevant at the time period it was released in theaters. In the books, you Only Live Twice was basically the third part of the Spectre trilogy, or the Blofeld trilogy. Thunderball being the first one, followed by Honor Majesty's Secret Service, and then You Only Live Twice. 
Of course, in the movies, that's not at all what happened, uh, because they actually introduced Spectre pretty early on when Dr. No mentions it in the first movie, Dr. No. And that continues through to this movie. So you have Dr. No from Russia with Love, Goldfinger, Thunderball, You Only Live Twice, and then Honor Majesty's Secret Service. And then Blofeld shows up again in Diamonds Are Forever, but that's a whole nother story. The pre-title sequence of the film is one of the most memorable and brutal of the franchise. So the cold open's kind of interesting. I appreciate the fact that the cold open wasn't a Bond moment, but showing the preamble to actions of the movie. We start this film with space dudes doing space things. Bond films have finally made it to the final frontier, and the first thing they do is show an irresponsible astronaut who cannot figure out how to get back in his ship. I guess he skipped that class. There's this scene where a NASA space capsule is captured by um, what looks to be a Russian rocket. An American spacecraft is captured by an unidentifiable black spacecraft, which opens in the front like some terrible man-made monster, cutting off the lifeline of an astronaut that is out of the craft. Spectre steals an American spacecraft with a uh, bigger spacecraft. Also, bye-bye astronaut Chris, who's about to pull a George Clooney from gravity and dooming him to drift through space and suffer a terrible death. Right off the bat, the intro of this movie is super memorable. Tsai Ching, the lovely Bond girl in the pre-credit sequence, made a cameo in Casino Royale. I think that makes her the only Bond romance to appear in more than one film. As if this wasn't bad enough, we then see Bond on a mission in China where his lover betrays him and he is shot to pieces through a mattress. And then it cuts to Bond, our man in Hong Kong, right before he gets killed. Again, him faking his own death. Like it's another fake out. Uh, first, the beginning where he gets slammed up into a wall in a fold-up bed and it's shot. Cut to the most convoluted plot to kill James Bond who is in the act of not actually sexually assaulting someone for once. Just being a bit racist and then is killed by the fake mob. One of the military police who find his body observes that he would have wanted to die in the line of duty, but this must have been a great shock and cold comfort for a 1967 audience who had come to believe in the invincibility of their British Secret Service agent hero. We're too late. Well, at least he died on the job. I never forget seeing Bond uh, in the little hideaway bed getting shot up by guards and then Folks come in, police officers, and declare him dead, and you're like, what's happening? James Bond can't die in the intro to the movie. And then there's like a naval funeral for him where they're doing the 21-gun salute, and they toss his body overboard. You're like, what's going on? James Bond can't be dead. What's so crazy about this, though, is that not only does he not die, they don't really explain it. Then the Navy funeral where he gets dumped out at sea. They don't explain why they went through all that trouble to cover up the fact that he was still alive. I, I, now, I know if you really read into it, you could say, oh, well, you know, Spectre's trying to kill him. So they made up this elaborate ruse that he died. But really, it's just to get Spectre off of their tail. And yet, Bond doesn't really go out of his way to hide his identity until the end. But we'll get into that. That's, uh, that's so weird. Maybe if Bond hadn't always introduced himself by name, he wouldn't have to be killed. And then, in the grand tradition started by Thunderball, two divers take his body to a submarine where he's cut out of his protective coating, I guess, uh, to reveal that he's on a breather and he's not actually dead. 
scuba divers come in, and I swim down to James Bond's body and bring him aboard a submarine and cut it open, and he's wearing breathing mask. James Bond is alive! They bury him at sea, leading to him being picked up by a submarine with a complete M office. He gets uh, brought into another room, and hey, there's Money Penny, and there's M, and it's it's M's office on a submarine. It's all your MI6 friends here on a submarine off the coast of Hong Kong. Including Money Penny in her own little anteroom. Sure, why not? Nothing about this scene makes any sense. So, like, it's not just that M has an office on a submarine. It's that M has an exact replication of his office on a submarine with a duplicate office for Money Penny, complete with Money Penny, and they're both wearing naval uniforms. FYI, don't think they had women on subs back then, but if the Double O program had their own submarine, holy crap! I don't even know where to start with this one. So, first of all, why? Second, does M have. Okay, so did M bring his office with him onto the submarine? Or did he just buy two of everything to make sure that his office was exactly how he wanted it on the submarine? Third of all, what the f? Why was he on the submarine? Besides from the sub, I loved the little name tag on the torpedo to show it was armed or not. Very old school. Nowadays we have, like, you know, technology buttons and lights and apps and why was money penning with him his secretary like why did they go through the trouble of getting them on that submarine just to brief bond why there's so many easier ways to do that i mean look at mission impossible just send him a you know send him a letter or an audio tape or a video message something that'll self-destruct five seconds after it plays just seems a lot more practical you know also, I love you too, Lois Maxwell. The title song sung by Nancy Sinatra is one of the most beautiful of the franchise. Perhaps the closest we have had to a love song out of all the theme songs and sung by Sinatra in a slow, dreamlike manner that makes the lyrics of the song even more memorable and real. I gotta admit, I really, I really do like the opening to this movie. John Barry's music and Leslie Bricus's lyrics create a ballad that is full of longing and beauty, speaking of how we live two lives, the real one in the world and another one inside of our minds, full of dreams and desire. The closest we come to the second life through the first is via love, with its ability to carry us away on a purely sensory journey, one in which we need not think of the limits of our real-world life and the responsibilities we have to it. The title sequence is gorgeous, the melody's perfect, the lava is a nice touch, the um, Japanese influence might be a little over the top. Writing for the Daily Telegraph, Mark Monaghan describes the lyrics as mysterious, romantically carpe diem, and once velvety, brittle, and quite bewitching. It's a song that fits in with the film, which is unlike all of those that had come before it, with Bond living a new life, the one after his fake death, reinventing himself in some ways in order to survive. But I really do think this is actually one of the better Bond opening songs. I think it's underrated, for sure. It's really just too bad that the rest of the movie doesn't quite live up to it. The script for You Only Live Twice was written by another British literary juggernaut, Roald Dahl. 
I actually didn't even realize that Roald Dahl had worked on the screenplay until this last time I was watching the movie and I saw it in the titles. Who while best remembered for his children's books, Roald Dahl, the guy who created Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Weaves a story that has all the things a Bond film should. I had to IMDB that because like, how did I not know this? A beautiful location, strong, interesting leading woman, and a villain who can be taken seriously and who is plotting to put into action a plan that will have serious consequences on a global scale. That is to ensure that the Cold War becomes hot through pitting America and Russia even more against each other through the space race. Fun facts, this was the first premiere of a James Bond film that Queen Elizabeth II ever attended. The pacing in this movie was better than any Bond movie to date. It just chugs along. I don't think there are any dead parts, uh, except for maybe like the swim away from the island and maybe the parts of the Nelly fight. Other than that, the plot's always driving forward, and with all the asides that could have been cut, they don't hurt the movie at all. Although it's clear that by You Only Live Twice, Connery was ready to move on from the role that had established him as a household name, and there was definite friction between he and Cubby Broccoli and Harry Saltzman, I don't think that Connery looks lazy or disinterested in this role. Connery's approach to Bond was always cool, collected, and almost emotionless at times. Unlike Roger Moore, Connery was never one to be overly facially emotive, and when he did have a quip, it was usually delivered as a throwaway thing. For me, along with Goldfinger, Connery actually gives his best performance as Bond in You Only Live Twice. He's grown into the role and is clearly in command of things. Weird fact. While scouting for this movie, almost the entire production staff, including the production advisor, Saltzman, Broccoli, almost all died on the British Overseas Airway Corporation Flight 911 on March 5, 1966. They were held over to see a ninja demonstration, so they missed the flight, and the craft clashed 45 minutes later. Now, I love Japan. I unfortunately haven't had a chance to go there yet myself, but I think it's a really cool setting. However, this was the 60s, and on one hand, you can tell there's a little bit of reverence for the Japanese culture. On the other hand, there's a lot of things that weren't handled super well in retrospect, but I don't think it's overtly malicious per se. Just within a modern context, they really lean into some not so cool stereotypes. And then suddenly James Bond is watching sumo wrestling. There's a long sequence here where the director just seems to be going like, hey, check it out. We went to Japan and filmed a sumo match. I actually like sumo. My friends in Japan are super into it, but I appreciate the sport. It's like no actual classes, just the best fighter wins. Now, there's two things that maybe a lot of people don't know about this movie that I think are kind of interesting. Um, Sean Connery was really popular in Japan, and he like had a hard time getting away from like paparazzi there uh, because people just were obsessed with him. Also, apparently uh, Toho, the studio behind the Godzilla films in Japan, actually collaborated with them on making this movie. This film holds a place in my heart only because of Toho Studio's participation. You can really tell if you look at the miniature work. Also, as I'm sure my friend Corey will point out, they provided sets, sound stages, personnel, and the two Japanese Bond girls. There's, uh, there's a couple Godzilla alums. There's a couple Kaiju alums in this movie. So I thought that was pretty awesome. There are so many allies in this movie. First of all, Charles Gray. I always remember this actor from Diamonds Are Forever, spoiler alert, uh, and the movie Inner Space with Dennis Quaid. 
Bond's first lead when he uh, starts trying to track down these missing missiles that have been abducted is a, uh, a contact in Japan who is a white guy, which like right off the bat, you're like, all right, cool. He's like white Japanese dude, I guess. And he's like, ah, oh, yes, I'm, I've lived here for many years, but I'm still getting used to Japan. Um, it's, a, it's a little weird. My favorite 007 moment was early on when they were in Japan. Bond is first introduced to Henderson, and within minutes, an assassin kills Henderson. Henderson's may be the smoothest murder and deserves so much credit. So I actually have two favorite kills, and they're kind of tied for me. There's the astronaut at the beginning who's on an EVA and gets his tether cut and floats off into space, 2001 style. Then there's Mr. Henderson, kind of an interesting character. He's apparently a British agent or um, something, and he's been in Japan since World War II, it sounds like. He gets knifed in the back right through a shoji screen. You know, those, um, those sliding doors of the translucent rice paper. Immediately after mixing Bond's drink incorrectly, as an established joke to the viewer, he just up and dies. But what's cool about it is that uh, th this whole scene I'm watching and I just don't trust this guy and I can't figure out why uh, he ends up getting murdered to death. And so you're like, I guess he's a good guy. But the reason I didn't trust him, I realized later, is because he plays Blofeld in like three movies from now. Two movies from now in Diamonds Are Forever. He's Blofeld. And so, you know, I just see his face and I'm like, oh, I don't trust that guy. I don't know what it is. That's why. No connection. Just same actor. Quick thinking James Bond tracks down the assassin and kills him. And seeing the getaway driver decides to take over the assassin's clothes and pretend to be him to find out who sent him. I'm not sure how well the getaway driver knew the assassin, but it's a little far-fetched that the driver would not have caught on that it was not the same person. It's not until he carries him into the office and removes the hat and mask that he reveals that it's not his friend, but it's James Bond. That makes it my favorite James Bond moment because it's just so far-fetched that that would actually happen to anyone but James Bond. My favorite ally in this movie has to be Tiger. Uh, I can't remember if Tiger has a last name. I just remember him being called Tiger. Tiger Tanaka. He's kind of like a Japanese M, I guess. What was the point of hiring a voice actor to dub over Tiger if the actor only spoke in a bad Japanese-English accent? It's pretty funny he's like the boss of this Japanese Secret Service, but goes on normal missions. I promise you the head of the President's Detail in the US or the head of the CIA aren't kicking down doors with a rocket gun. Tiger Tanaka is a wonderful host. He also totally called Bond out for being ladies' man. What kind of whack financial decisions is the Japanese government making for Tiger to have massage girls and a full spa? But the whole Japanese women have to serve thing nowadays seems like dirty. I mean, I get it, but it's still not right, even back then. We're introduced to the beautiful Aki, one of Toho's best bays featured in Dogara, King Kong vs. Godzilla, and Ghidorah the Three-Headed Monster. Aki, played by Akiko Wakabayashi, is Bond's equal in every way. She saved his life on multiple occasions and is seen to be one of Tanaka, M's Japanese opposite number's best agents. Bond eventually meets up with another contact uh, named Aki, uh, who takes him to Tanagra, who is his main contact throughout this movie. Um, he meets up with Aki at a sumo match. Aki! Okay, so her name's with, rhymes with mine, and that's pretty awesome. She's also pretty confident uh, and kick-ass. 
This is also the first time we see Bond come close to really loving his Bond leading lady and making a proper emotional connection with her. This would come again in the following film, Honor Majesty's Secret Service, between Bond and Tracy. But until the living daylights, where Bond falls in love with Russian cellist Kara Milovi, You Only Live Twice and Honor Majesty's Secret Service would arguably be the only two films in which Bond can be seen to be having a fully developed relationship with one leading Bond lady. Plus, the chase of her leaves James Bond into falling into an office and telling a young Japanese man that he loves him. There was no lead up to that kiss. I seriously feel like I missed a scene. I also really like the slide to Tonka's office. At that point in the movie, you're not sure if Aki is someone he can trust. And she leads Bond to a railway station and he falls down this mysterious slide. And we're just excited to know that he's in Tonka's office and not someplace bad. By the time we reached the train scene, I had to ask myself, does Bond ever hydrate? He's only had liquor so far. Eventually, Bond figures out that there's this one area off the coast that's probably where some stuff's going down, but they've got to investigate. And so he has Tanagra call up uh, MI6 and ask them to send Little Nelly and her father. But it turns out Little Nelly is a tiny little stunt helicopter and her father is Q. Now, one of my favorite moments is when James orders the Dom 1959 in the villain's office. That's pretty baller. I mean, you broke in the night before and killed a guy, but you know, you're back here to order like a tanker full of MSG. Uh, don't hesitate to order a nice glass of expensive champagne. Now, I'm normally the guy that has the price list of all the weird things, but this price was so esoteric, I couldn't find the cost of a 1959 Dom Perignon in 1967. So I'm not sure the actual cost back then, but a bottle of Dom today runs about $100 normally. I did find a couple bottles of 1959 that you can buy today, the most expensive going for about $1,486.82. There's a couple really outstanding henchmen in this movie. They've only got like, I want to say like one or two scenes each, but you got Hans, uh, who is the blonde Russian looking dude towards the end. And then earlier on in the movie, there's a fight scene in the office building. Turns out that's Dwayne The Rock Johnson's grandpa. How is it that we already passed by a bunch of Japanese sumo wrestlers, then all of a sudden this clearly Samoan chauffeur shows up? My favorite villain moment. It's pretty epic in this one. The scene at the shipyard with James Bond and Aki. It's very West Side Story. One of my favorite dumb parts in the movie is the whole West Side Story production at the docks. The music gets dramatic. A bunch of greasers attempt to fight James Bond with dances and jumps. Everyone has like bludgeoning items like lead pipes and giant wrenches. Oh, Maria, Maria. I really was just waiting for like the snaps to happen in the background. Once again, James Bond gets that luxury treatment. He gets to sleep with a girl, then get taken for a luxury plane flight, only to then be betrayed. Favorite vehicle? The convertible in Japan is gorgeous. I think Justin said it was a Toyota 2000 GT. We have another great car, the Toyota 2000 GT. These cars were so small, Toyota had to modify two models to simulate a convertible just so Sean Connery could fit inside. My favorite vehicle in the movie, the car with the tiny Sony Japanese TV communications device. That thing was high tech. Actress Akiko couldn't drive, so every scene with her actively driving is a stunt double. 
The scene in which she communicates with headquarters to have henchmen picked up with a giant magnet and dropped in the ocean is one of the highlights of the film. How's that for Japanese efficiency? Just a drop in the ocean. Installing oil slicks might be cheaper than using a military helicopter with a giant magnet, but Tiger is all about abusing that money. I miss Bond's car in this movie, but we make up for it with Little Nelly. I'm sure it's going to be a fan favorite, but Little Nelly was pretty high up there for me. Wasn't a huge fan of the mini helicopter. Little Nelly is one of those believable inventions. I love that it was a portable helicopter. Enjoyed that it came in like 10 suitcases. Maybe not four suitcases, but believable nonetheless. And it was a great segue to get Q to come in and explain the gadget. So take a step back and think about the dialogue between Q and Bond. Bond is ready to just hop into Little Nelly until Q tells him she has a few upgrades, implying that Bond is already familiar with some of the weapons. Then Q proceeds to point out and describe every single weapon. Bond was about to hop in an armed aircraft with weapon controls he's never used before. Typical. Now, I saw this movie after I saw Road Warrior, which is Mad Max Part 2. So I've been aware that gyrocopters were actually a real thing and not just something made up for the movies. But I can imagine seeing this thing back in 1967 would have been crazy. Being that this film is based in Japan, this funky vehicle feels like something out of a Toho monster film, not a Bond film. However, for a spy vehicle, it's bright yellow, has large rockets and guns built in. Not sure if it's that's the best thing if you're flying over the giant base. Now... I get that Bond wants to be sneaky, and so he's like, yeah, I'm going to take this sneaky little helicopter. It's also very well armed, which is a good thing, because he gets spotted immediately, and we get an action scene where Bond has to take down, like, four military-grade attack helicopters in his dinky little thing. It just doesn't seem like it should work. The scene where Bond notices enemy copters in the shadows on the mountainside is the most artistic shot in the film. I still think it's really cool. My favorite quote from the film was when Asado says, but Bond is dead. And Helga Brandt says, it was in all the newspapers. Okay, so, uh, where do I start? How was it in all the newspapers? Why does the whole world know that James Bond is a secret agent? How is he a secret agent if everyone knows his name? I also really liked the safe opening mechanism. I do appreciate that James Bond just like walks around with a safe cracking kit on him at all times. So when he breaks into the office, he's like, oh, I could open that thing. Very simple, very efficient, and just very convenient for him to have in his pocket. There's a couple really cool uh, minor gadgets in this movie. You got the safe decoder. I feel like that would still come in handy today. And of course, the rocket cigarette. Probably couldn't get away with that one in a modern Bond movie. My favorite gadget is probably the rocket cigarettes. It's ridiculous. Like, you light up a cigarette and a rocket comes flying out of it. Um, it's actually shown to uh, Bond by my favorite side character, which is Tiger, the ninja commander. It's really weird. Another good line was, It won't be the nicotine that kills you, Mr. Bond. Now, at this point, this movie's been pretty all right. 
then Bond heads out to meet Tanagra at his uh, secret ninja training facility that nobody knows about. So secretive that two assassins will show up over the course of the next few minutes of the film to try to murder Bond in the secret ninja training facility that nobody knows about. Uh, I like going through the ninja facility. I, I don't know if any of this is like accurate to what training ninjas would actually do. It does feel like it calls back to me to the Spectre training facility from, from Russia with Love, which I like a lot. Um, we see that above ground, they've got like, you know, typical like throwing stars and swords and that kind of stuff. And then he's like, oh, I'm going to take you to where the modern ninjas are. And down underground, they're training with guns and Q-type gadgets and cigarettes that secretly house little missiles in them and stuff. Uh, it, it's, it's neat. The most useless weapon in the entire movie is the rocket gun. It looks like a single shot AR-10 rifle with a freaking rocket on it. How is that better than like a regular bullet or, you know, a bunch of bullets or a machine gun? So much can go wrong. It can literally blow up in your hand. It's not accurate. Aki is my favorite Bond leading lady, as she is funny, clever, loyal, and extremely beautiful. She and Bond have a connection that can be felt throughout their time together on screen. And when she dies, you feel it most acutely especially because her final act is, once again, saving Bond's life. Aki actually dies by a real, actual ninja killer trick, the poison down the string. So the bad guys apparently went to the same daylight ninja fighting school that Tanaka does. I like the poison dripping down the string. It's not over the top and is a real thing. Akiko was originally cast in the role of Kissy, the agent and island girl who succeeds her upon her death and who Tanaka instructs Bond to marry in order to create a firm cover. And then, after Aki's unfortunate demise, he marries a Japanese woman that he's never met before. And she automatically falls in love with him and joins him on his mission for some reason. For having such a face like a pig to the Japanese, Kissy Suzuki's kind of hot. And a Bond, trained ninja, and willing to swim like four miles across the ocean to go get help. And he criticized the fact that Bond is not seen to extensively mourn her passing and that he moves on with Kissy. While this is a sore spot for me too, I understand that Bond has a mission to complete and has to internalize his personal feelings and desires. As he is repeatedly reminded by M throughout the series, there is no room for personal response or attachments. And it is only over 20 years later in License to Kill that we see Bond giving into personal inclinations and seeking revenge for what is done to those close to him. But unfortunately, it ends with Tanagra telling Bond that the new plan is that they're going to... A bunch of his ninjas will sneak to the volcano lair, but to get Bond there, they have to have him go undercover as a Japanese man. They're going to they're gonna turn Sean Connery into a Japanese man. This is just very weird. As for Bond being disguised as a Japanese fisherman, the film itself makes fun of this device. And he's going to have to marry a woman, and ah, she looks like a pig. Isn't it funny to talk about how ugly she is? And it's just bad. Aki and her fellow female agents are shown to be openly derisive about trying to make a hairy white man into anything else. Who thought it would be a good idea to address every stereotypical Japanese feature? It's clear that the locals know something's up, but don't say anything because of all the other strange happenings on the island. It's bad, it's bad, it's bad. If there's one thing I could change about this movie, maybe let's not make Bond put on yellow face? First of all, why? Second of all, it looks terrible. Everything to do with Bond being a Japanese fisherman is continually presented as a farce, not to be taken too seriously, but something that's necessary for the mission. Plus, it has pretty much no bearing on his mission whatsoever, and he, he doesn't really look any different. 
he looks like Sean Connery. I love how all it takes for Bond to become Japanese is a bad Spock haircut. They do all this work to make him a native, then do everything possible to hide his appearance from everyone as if acknowledging their awful job. It's bad. They basically give Sean Connery a wig and some wrinkles on his forehead and a bad wig. Blofeld would recognize him in a second. Uh, did I say a wig already? A tan. A tan, a wig, and a wrinkled forehead. That's his Japanese costume. And then he marries a woman and, oh, look, she's actually really pretty. And then they go to the island and then immediately he and the woman, like, get rid of their secret identities. I don't understand why Bond had to go undercover here. And why did they not dub him? His Japanese accent is the worst in this film. You already have voice actors on deck. Thankfully, this isn't presented with the seriousness of Marlon Brando being Asian in Tea House of the August Moon, or most of the cast in Hammer's Terror of the Toms, both of which are even more cringe-inducing to a pretty much unbearable degree. It's weird. James Bond's ninja training and marriage really could have used an 80s montage, or a bontage. And the, f- the whole second half of the movie, there's some, there's some cool stuff in there, but the sense of urgency just kind of goes away. It's really weird. We now have this kind of cute scene between Bond and Kissy Suzuki, which is once again ruined by clearly bad dubbing. It is at this point, though, that we do find that Blofeld's involved. We don't see his face yet, but you find out that he's here and he's extorting uh, the people whose plot this is. It's his plot, but it's their plot. Anyway, he's extorting them and they're, he's like, they're like, this is extortion. He's like, I work, I run Spectre. One of the E's is for extortion. Uh, and he's like, hey, check it out. I got a super cool pool full of piranha. I'm definitely going to feed you to them. And the guy's like, oh, man, no, it's the girl's fault. And he's like, well, you're in charge, so I'm going to feed you to him. Just kidding. And he drops the girl, and she gets eaten to death by piranhas. Favorite villain moment? Uh, feeling that he has a moat full of piranha that eat people that might come up again later, like when he kills someone else. Uh, one of the Spectre people, uh, I think it was number 11, gets dropped into it. But also, my favorite Bond kill, uh, there's like a bodyguard thug that is with number one, and he gets thrown into the piranha pit by James Bond. Ooh, that big bad guy uh, bodyguard, Blofeld, was like a like, kind of like a prototype Jaws. Uh, and he even follows through his plans, like he was smart enough to know what to do. He also beats the crap out of Bond. Uh, Bond eventually throws him the piranhas. So, I gotta ask, does Spectre do background checks? Do they have an HR manager? Are there health benefits? I sure hope there's life insurance. I think the entire best scene of this movie is when Blofeld comes into the frame. One, great actor, Donald Pleasance, been in a ton of stuff since and before. Plus, it was super dramatic, and we build note to this moment for the past five movies. Now, like I mentioned, uh, the villain this time around is Blofeld, the head of Spectre. This is the first time we actually get to see his face, his scarred, ugly face, and his cat. While Blofeld is not a very threatening villain, that scar makeup is very convincing and creepy to watch as it pulls down over the eye just a little every time his mouth opens. Now, it's good to see Blofeld is the main villain in this movie. Uh, We've been building up to it for a while. I was excited to finally meet Blofeld. And as someone who's new to these to these movies, 
but it's very familiar with the Austin Power series since it was like more my generation. Finally seeing Blofeld's face was just like everything clicking for me. And man, is it a ripoff that Austin Powers did of James Bond for Dr. Evil. I assume there'd be similarities to a character, but not like down to the last detail exact. He's also doing it for 100 million bucks, which compared to some of the numbers in the previous movies is just insane. Adjusting for inflation today, it'd be about 772,799,401.20. In fact, one of the people supposed to be hiring Blofeld on something like, that's extortion! And Blofeld goes, extortion is my business. Go and think it over, gentlemen. I'm busy. I'm also getting a little irritated by the fact that all these Spectre people get so close they could kill Bond, but they'd rather have the drama which ends up with Bond getting away. What's weird is, in the books, because the order is completely different, You Only Live Twice was actually the follow-up to On Her Majesty's Secret Service. It was picking up after the tragic ending of that book, slash movie, and this one was supposed to be the epic final confrontation between Bond and Blofeld. And we'll get into that a little bit more on the next episode, spoiler alert, but I do think it's worth pointing out that from a narrative perspective, it makes a lot more sense to have Honor Majesty's Secret Service take place before this one. My favorite vehicle, which I'm going to have to say is the rocket capture device. Uh, I'm not not sure if that counts as a vehicle, but it does carry a couple of astronauts back to Earth, which Spectre capture. Can I ask how they have cameras in space that can show something not connected to your vehicle? I mean, I understand a shot of the other craft being eaten, but not the point of view of the craft that's about to be swallowed up. It's literally looking down the maw of that big incoming interceptor. After that, we get another another of these long silent sequences that I'm discovering that the old Bond movies liked, where it's showing the shuttle getting taken. And this one's not totally silent, but the problem is that the people whose shuttle it is are Russian and so it keeps going back to the Russian command and it's in Russian which is cool I like that they didn't like subtitle it or translate it but it ends up just being a long sequence where there's not really any dialogue you're paying attention too much of the shuttle getting stolen and then it coming back to earth and the volcano opens up so the audience now knows that it's a secret volcano layer with a metal roof and then it goes inside and then the cosmonauts get taken out of it and it just kind of goes on This isn't what I would call a good Bond movie, but there's a lot of great moments in it. And I gotta say, the entire fortress set, Blofeld's Volcano Fortress. The climax of the film in Blofeld's Lair in the volcano is one of the best pieces of set design in the entire series. And also one of the most exciting thirds acts in a Bond film. Is one of the coolest sets in the entire franchise. I think it's the epitome of secret villain bases. So you get Bond and the girl sneaking up to the volcano lair. They're pretty sure this is what's going on, but they don't know. It's like, oh, the water, how deep is it? I'll have to check. And Bond throws a rock on it. And he figures out that it's metal. But since the audience already knows this, it makes Bond seem like like he's catching up. It's weird that they revealed to the audience how the secret volcano lair worked. And then like half an hour later, Bond is still trying to figure it out. It's just, it's weird pacing. 
One of the best moments of this film is when all the ninjas stand at the rim of the volcano, an obviously Kurosawa-inspired film moment. Bond and Tanaka and his highly trained army of ninja agents, yes I really just said ninja agents, save the world from a third world war. All that fake water stuff's crazy too. If you haven't yet noticed in this podcast series, Bond is the master of wearing an entirely different dry outfit beneath his soaking wet outfit. I'm glad Bond always carries suction cups for his knees to break into the base. Where are you keeping those suction cups, buddy? I don't know if anyone realizes that James Bond would have just, like, died if he made it down to the rocket. It had a ground-based self-destruct that Blofeld was going to use. Sure, he still might have been attacked on the surface, but he still would have blown up the entire rocket just to, like, start the war. So James Bond being a bad astronaut actually saved the world. Then Bond sneaks in, he ends up breaking the astronauts out, and they try to sneak on board the ship, and Blofeld is like, wait a minute, I recognize that astronaut, bring him here. But the other astronauts, which the bad guys think are their people, but are actually cosmonauts, I believe, still get onto Spectre's spaceship and go into space. That'll be important, because what happens next is Bond goes and meets with Blofeld and uses a secret cigarette to blow up some monitors and all hell bakes loose and all the ninjas break in, and Bond causes that to self-destruct. The ship, which I believe had the innocent cosmonauts in it, it, it self-destructs. That sucks. It's endearing when the Japanese security guards, in traditional Japanese fashion, enter with their nightsticks in hand instead of guns. This invasion is so much more intense than Thunderball's underwater sequence. There are explosions, modern ninjas, shuriken, and automated machine guns that mysteriously didn't notice Bond and Suzuki earlier. To end it all off, they hold the camera too long on the ninjas that just sit spinning around in circles while dangling from ropes. There are some great kills in this movie. James literally kills someone with a throwing star. Kissy even kills some people. Somebody kills somebody with a sword. Brick kills someone with a trident. Oh wait, wrong movie. And then stops the bond, not at 07. So that's kind of crazy. The presentation of the line, you only live twice, is exactly like the Family Guy skit where Peter notices the name of the film in the film. This is the moment where dangling Bond over a piranha tank while monologuing about the meaning of the phrase would be great. But no, it's tossed away without any impact. During the big assault scene at one point, uh, Blofeld has Bond at gunpoint and also has uh, the, the, the Japanese businessman that he's been working with at gunpoint. Well, I, he doesn't think he's at gunpoint, but he is. Because Blofeld's like, ah, I've got a secret panel here. And Blofeld's kind of like a hunched over, like, schmarmy guy in this one. He's not like cool he's just kind of like eh, eh. like he could be played by danny devito uh and he's got the gunpoint of bond he's like this is the price of failure mr bond and then he turns and shoots the businessman and you're like oh man and then he's like all right bond come with me and has him go down a tunnel and at the other end of the tunnel there's a car and both gets in the car and then is going to shoot bond and i'm like why didn't you just shoot him before going through the tunnel and stuff, waiting until you're over here. And he should have, because then what happens? Bam, Tanaga hits him in the hand with a throwing star, knocks the gun away, and uh, Blofeld escapes, but does not kill James Bond. But I really loved the tram in the volcano. Without a doubt, it had to be the most over-the-top set to build. The tram is just my favorite vehicle because it, it's unnecessary. It moves them like 25 feet, but they built it, and it's in this volcano, and it's there. To me, it was hilarious. It seemed like such a jolty ride. And at one point, Blofeld uses it as an escape pod, which just leads to the drama of the whole situation. I want a useless monorail in my house. That's my life's goal. 
I think I'm going to build it during this quarantine. We'll see what my wife thinks. I like that Blofeld placed the self-destruct in a distant, hidden area. It's not immediately accessible, so there's no way Felix Leader could stop this one. One other thing I gotta mention real quick. I really kind of like Blofeld's plot in this movie, because it turns out that he's not really after money. In all the previous movies, it seemed like that it's all Spectre cared about was ransoming the world for more money. Turns out, Blofeld is a bit of an anarchist. He is just out to see the world burn. He's really trying to start World War III. That's apparently been his play the whole time. Or at least that's what I got from it. Just weird that he has so many, like, nihilistic followers, you know? The movie ends in the most glorious way, in a volcano with a fight between a supervillain's army and ninjas with rocket guns and katanas. You really feel that there is a payoff, even if Blofeld is able to escape arrest. I pointed this out before, but I mean, The Simpsons' best character, Hank Scorpio, is based on this entire scene. And he even had a pool of piranhas in it. At the end, there's also a bunch of fake lava, and it ends with Bond and the girl on a boat, because of course it does. Oh, and it, it ends once again on a boat with a girl. Eventually, the whole volcano layer is being self-destructed, self so everybody's like, run away, run away, into the water! And all the ninjas are escaping in the water, and Bond's there in the water, and he's got his wife? His wife. Remember, James Bond got married in this movie. Uh, they're in the water, and then life rafts come down, and Bond and the girl on a life draft, and you're like, ah, oh, here it goes. It's gonna end with them in a boat. And then what's that? MI6 submarine lifts them up out of the water, and M asks Money Penny to go and bring Bond down. And that's where the movie ends. Props to this ending for the submarine pickup. I don't know if this was the first movie to do it, but I've seen a million after it. You Only Live Twice is, it's a Bond movie that has a lot of really memorable things in it. That intro is really, really good. Um, Little Nelly, I remember it as soon as it started happening. I was like, oh yeah, they're coming over to assemble a helicopter for him. And then it's got the secret volcano lair and the whole ninja fight scene. Super cool stuff. But why does it have Bond pretending? Why why, why, why does Sean Connery dress up in, in Japanese face? It was a little cringy, but it was kind of a fun watch. This is another one where I wish that they could remake the movie and just, just do a better job with all the cultural stuff. Why is that a necessary thing? It is not necessary to the plot entirely. I think you could cut entirely from like, we've got a ninja training school. We're going to send the ninjas in to bond on the island with a girl when he's already lost his ninja or his rather his Japanese makeup. And you wouldn't be missing anything in the plot. The movie would be a lot snappier and it wouldn't have this horribly racist problem in it. So yeah, that's uh, You Only Live Twice. Yeah, I think that's everything. Oh, and Blofeld gets away. And you feel, once again, that all is well in the world as long as Bond is there to save it. James Bond will return in On Her Majesty's Secret Service. Podcasters Assemble Season 003 is a production of the We Can Make This Work Probably Podcast Network. Find more of our shows at probablywork.com and learn how to contribute to future episodes of Podcasters Assemble by looking us up on Twitter at Casters Assemble or joining our Discord server, link in the show notes. Submissions are always open. Thank you to everyone who was able to contribute to this episode. Be sure to check the show notes for links where you can find them all online. Thank you. This has been a presentation of the We Can Make This Work Probably Network.
Follow us on Twitter at ProbablyWork for more of our questionable content. Also, we have a website called ProbablyWork.com. My absolute favorite scene in the whole freaking movie. He gets a knife through the back through the rice doors. Are those what those are called? He gets knifed through the back. He gets knifed in the back right through a shoji through a shoji screen. A shoji screen. You know those um, doors, those sliding doors of the translucent rice paper. So yeah, that's uh, on her mad. Oh, sorry. So that yeah, that's uh, you only live twice. Podcasters Assemble will return in on Her Majesty's Secret Service.